Buddy, this is Chris. Welcome to episode 250 of X Lapsed. That's right, we are at a quarter of a thousand episodes of this show, and uh, boy, I didn't think we'd make it a quarter of a hundred uh, or a quarter of ten when we started this, but here we are at a quarter of 1,000 episodes. I want to thank everybody so much for your support over this past year plus. It's really made uh, all the difference for me. Without all your support, um, there's a high probability that this would not still be a thing that I uh, integrate into my daily routine. So uh, thank you all so much for all your support, all your kind words, and uh, so on and so forth. I, I will uh, come back to the thank yous towards the end of the episode, so don't you worry none about that. We will get back into it. But today we have a very special book here. This is one we've been waiting for for quite a long time, and um, really I couldn't think of anything better for our 250th episode than... Uh, Taking a look at the first issue of X-Men, The Trial of Magneto, number one. Now, this had an October 2021 cover date. The story is called Dial M for Wanda. Written by Leah Williams, with art by Lucas Wernick. Colors, Edgar Delgado. Letters, VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X for now is Hickman. Edits, Andrews Ballesteros, Amaro, Thomas, White, Sobolski. Got quite the crew of editors. Cover price, $5. Went on sale August the 18th of 2021. Now, uh, you know, it's funny. When we start these shows, I'll often say something like, you know, we don't often talk about the covers. But I think I've said that so often that I, I probably shouldn't say that anymore because we, we do talk about the covers a fair amount here. Not all the time, but uh, we do <laughs> we do dive into the covers here and again. And we will do that right now as well. This is a beautiful cover. It's a great cover. Uh, the real cover, that is, because I'm assuming there were at least 25 variants. Uh, not only... Is it cool to look at? I mean, it is Valerio Shidi, but I loved how they teased the story by using a chalk outline instead of actually showing us who was murdered. Uh, that was, like, really, really neat when we first saw that, and I actually assumed that the chalk outline version was going to be part of the final product, and, you know, I would have been cool with that, but this, this is also great. I suppose we could be thankful that Marvel didn't do a lenticular version because, uh, you know, uh, over the past little while, I've gone back and I've picked up some of the lenticular Marvel Legacy uh, issues, and wow, they, they were not great. <laughs> you could really only see, like, one of the covers they were trying to show, and if you turned it just the right way, you'd almost see what it was, like, homaging, but still, like, you couldn't really see it very well. I think uh, DC actually did it quite a bit better with the lenticulars, but that's neither here nor there. Let's uh, Let's get past the cover and get to the book here. Now, we start with a mostly blank quote page, and it's, uh, it's from Wanda. Here, she suggests that uh, immortality is a curse, comparing it to terrestrial purgatory. Now, whether or not that's a uh, commentary on her own magical self, or maybe something we're supposed to relate to the uh, resurrection protocols, I mean, I guess it's one of those things we can take anyway, any which way we want it. We turn the page and we are into our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters will include North Star, Prodigy, Prestige, Eyeboy, Wolverine, Polaris, Dakin, Dakin, Magneto, and the Scarlet Witch. Now, we open with X-Factor investigating the murder of Scarlet Witch. And yeah, this could very easily have been the opening pages to X-Factor number 11, though in a recent interview, Leia Williams said that this would have been X-Factor number 15, only that would have sold far fewer copies uh, than this did, I'm sure, and really, who's got time for that? Now, as Dakin, Dakin, Sniffs, and Rachel Chrono skims the area, they're all rather annoyed that they're being watched by the X-Men and X-Force. We've got Wolverine and Domino from X-Force, and Wolverine, well, X-23 Wolverine, and Sync from the X-Men. 
Domino explains that uh, X-Force is here only because they were put in charge of security during the gala, so, uh, you know, this happening under their watch. It doesn't look so good, does it? It's a, a bit of a blemish on him there. Uh, Wolverine, the, the real one, uh, Logan, uh, he asked Northstar to uh, kindly remove the stick from his butt, to which Jean-Paul says, nope, the stick stays. So, anyway, Rachel chrono skims and see, can see that Wanda was running from whoever was pursuing her. Now, she fought free and made it about three or so strides in running before being caught again. She was then dragged through the foliage, kicking and digging her heels in the whole way. And Northstar, he just wonders how anybody could have gotten the jump on someone as powerful as the Scarlet Witch. Now, we shift scenes over to the Boneyard's cadaver farm and operating theater. Here, Wanda's getting the once-over by X-Factor to kind of do a little bit of forensic pathology on her death. Uh, Prodigy and iBoy are doing their tandem thing to perform the forensics, and Dakin, Dakin, is also here to use his sniffer. Beast and Sage are also there to review X-Factor's findings, which Prodigy doesn't dig. Wolverine, the real one, he's he's there, but he's more or less just there as a spectator, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about... Um, maybe I'm projecting. Maybe I'm projecting here, but I feel like there's some passive-aggressive anger in this book. Uh, we're seeing... Just in the first two scenes here, we've got characters from X-Factor wishing the X-Men and X-Force would go away. And I, I mean, maybe we know a little bit too much about how the sausage is made, but I can't help but to think that, and maybe I'm projecting, but uh, maybe this is some commentary coming from our uh, creative team. I could be wrong. Then again, I, I could be right. Now, also, from up in the watching zone, we see several members of the new X-Men, along with the five, watching this all play out. And Prodigy doesn't dig that either. Now, Dakin, Dakin follows his nose to attempt to dissect and explain the crime scene. Now, he suggests that she was ret- restrained from behind and choked out. Eyeboy notes the tissue damage in her lungs, confirming that Wanda's breath was restricted. Now, Prodigy claims that she was scratching herself so hard as to remove whatever was obstructing her breathing that she began to bleed. And here's the thing. The only biological evidence on her person was her own so no traces of an attacker. Now, Wolverine, the real one, suggests that his boy Dakin, Dakin, give it another whiff, and he smells something inorganic. He can deduce that Wanda's hands were eventually bound behind her, and it's suggested that this is either the result of magic or metal manipulation. Hmm. Rachel then chimes in that uh, while chrono-skimming, she saw someone in a white cape walking away from Wanda's corpse. Which, um, shouldn't we have led with that? (laughs) I don't know. Oh, well. Now, from here, we get a very wordy two-page spread, which basically has everyone come around to the idea that, uh, well, suspect number one is Magneto. Northstar suggests that the murder was done in a paternal way, as uh, Wanda's face was left unmarred, which seems a stretch, but okay. Um, Now, this uh, theorized revelation here kind of... Kind of falls flat for me a little bit. I mean, the book is called Trial of Magneto. That's not <laughs> that's not X Factor's fault. But also in X Factor number ten, when they found Wanda's body, Wolverine already assumed Magneto was the culprit, right? He's like, "Where's Magneto? We need Magneto." Uh, so this isn't quite as earth shattering as perhaps it's intended to be. Now, of note, Polaris is among those following this from the watching zone, and she asks her teammates if maybe she could get a head start on this one. From here, we send it over to the Quiet Council, where Magneto is acting quite peculiar indeed. He's now also wearing his black costume. It looks like the one from that pre-Secret Wars Magneto series that I didn't much care for. Uh, the series, that is. The, the outfit's pretty tight. I, I like the black costume. Now, I don't know if he's wearing this because he's in mourning, or because, uh, well, he figures that they've deduced that someone in a white cape has uh, killed her and is trying to throw them off the scent. Maybe a little bit of both, maybe, maybe neither, who knows. Now, he is really pressing the Quiet Council for them to approve the resurrection of Wanda via the resurrection protocols and the gold balls. Now, you see, it's here that we learn that Wanda and Pietro were able to trick Cerebro long enough so that they actually do have backups. The backups are old, but they're there. And they were apparently the only non-mutants to slip one past Cerebro. So, I guess Franklin doesn't have a backup then, and uh, probably not Cloak and Dagger, or Squirrel Girl, or even Toro. Um, I mean, is there any other character that's been unmutanted in recent years? Uh, 
I don't know. I, I just hope that they don't demutantify Namor the Submariner for, uh, well, reasons we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. Um, now, this all goes back to a story bit from, I want to say, Uncanny Avengers, which was right at the start of Marvel's, you know, wow, we don't have the movie rights to the X-Men because he sold them to Fox, but nobody wanted anything to do with comic book movies. But now people do, so we want them back. Wah, temper tantrum. And uh, the high evolutionary was involved, and as you might imagine, it was wildly dull. So Mr. Sinister's here, and he's all, hey, we hated her, and she's dead. How about we just leave well enough alone? And Magneto suggests that to do so would endanger the Krakoan experiment. And uh, I'm not exactly sure what he means by that. Xavier chimes in, basically, to ask Eric to uh, settle his tea kettle for a bit. And he says that this isn't the arena for threats and pageantry, which I guess that takes Magneto's two greatest strengths and pleasures right off the playing board, right out of the gate. Mystique posits that Magneto's interest in resurrecting Wanda speaks to an ulterior motive, maybe even his attempt at covering his tracks and avoiding exile into the hole. Now, Xavier confirms that X-Factor is conducting their investigation, which really gets under Magneto's skin. Now, he immediately jumps on the defensive, suggesting that someone could tamper with the evidence, which sure doesn't sound like uh, an innocent man speaking here, does it? Emma then speaks up and... uh, she basically says that uh, Magneto's trying to get ahead of the story and spin it. You know, this would be a pretty convenient excuse if, uh, you know, the guilty party were in the room, huh? Now, Xavier decides to put it to a vote. So, do they put the Scarlet Witch through the resurrection protocols? Well, we got three votes for. That's uh, Magneto, Call Me Kate, and Nightcrawler. And six votes against. Exodus, Sinister, Mystique, Emma, Shaw, and Storm, who I didn't think was still part of the Quiet Council, but... So whatever, uh, Xavier does not place a vote, uh, not that it would matter either way. Now, Magneto is ticked off, and then he even goes as far as to use his powers to, I think, start crushing Xavier's dopey Cerebro helmet right there on his head? Uh, Nightcrawler and Call Me Kate hop to the prof's defense, and Magneto stands down. He warns that the Quiet Council just made the wrong choice, and Xavier said that, uh, mistake or not, well, it's theirs to make. Magneto appeals to the Council one last time, suggesting that they're kneeling to human limitations, something that the Krakoan experiment has rendered beneath them as a people. Basically, if you can resurrect Wanda, why in the world wouldn't you? Which is a pretty good point, yes, though of course uh, there could certainly be ulterior motives at play here. Magneto then says something about having survived the Holocaust before stomping out. He exits, and we get a uh, really great scene, though... I wish it was presented just a little bit differently than it is here. We got Magneto walking among the Krakoans, and they are all celebrating the death of the Pretender. Now, of course, we've seen over the course of the post-Hox Pox days here, Exodus doing his little uh, his little take on Sunday school, right? T- training the children of Krakoa that uh, the Pretender is their enemy, and of course, her passing would uh, certainly be something worth celebrating. And uh, we do see some great big bonfires here, the only thing I wish it was a little bit different, I, I wish this scene was a little bit more jubilant. You know, I wanted to see, like, like basically a riotous celebration rather than, I don't know, feels relatively subdued, though uh, that could just be me. Now, Magneto is then confronted by the unified X-Men, X-Force, X-Factor contingent, and uh, they attempt to place him under arrest. But, I mean, it's Magneto. It ain't ever gonna be quite that easy. Uh, but before we get into that, How about we sidebar for just a bit? Now, recall that after it was revealed that this book was going to be called The Trial of Magneto, if you remember, the title was redacted in the Reign of X infographic, but once it was revealed, Magneto started making some comments in the X books here. After which, I would say something along the lines of, huh, perhaps you should choose your words more carefully, you know, most notably during Fabian Cortez's naked plea during Sword 5 or 6 or so, uh, Magneto mentioned that murder is a choice, and it's one that he'd made before. But if he were to do it again, he would gladly become Sabretooth's roommate. So I guess I'm taking the scenic route here to suggest that uh, Magneto's either innocent or a liar, so, yeah, I I guess I just wasted a minute of your time and mine, so uh, let's move on, let's move on. From here, we shift back over to the cadaver farm, where Speed is watching over Wanda's body. Now, he's met by North Star's better half, Kyle, who comforts him, and Tommy says he tried to get a hold of his brother Billy, Wiccan, of course, to let him know what's going on, but he can't get through. 
Now, this is because of the Last Annihilation stuff, of course. And Wanda's body here, it's not entirely clear what's happening, which um, we'll talk a little bit more about the art later, but um, there is a muddy feel to it. And here, like, what I'm getting out of this page is it looks like Wanda's body was kind of wrapped in a, like, Krakoan cocoon of sorts, just, like, covered in vines, because we don't see her body. But maybe that'll make more sense as we uh, as we continue our way through this series. Uh, next up, we shift scenes to Manhattan. We join Captain America, Iron Man, and Wasp, who are gathered at a Krakoan gate. Now, Cap notices that, are some, that there are some interesting new flowers sprouting on this gate. They're then joined by the Vision, who had uh, called them all here to meet. Now, these flowers were apparently Wanda's favorite and were not native to Krakoa, to which Tony is not terribly impressed. Vision continues. He summoned them all here because not only are these Wanda's faves, but she never returned from the Hellfire Gala. Just then, Professor X emerges from the gate, and, well, he has some very terrible news. Back to Krakoa, where the combined X crews are attempting to apprehend Magneto. Now, it comes down to Eric being confronted by Lorna, who talks a bunch of spoo about how he attempts to break down those he loves in order to remake them into his version of perfection. This feels kind of like a reach. Um, She claims that he did this to her, which, I mean, I could be mistaken, but I don't remember that one bit. I mean, it's only been relatively recent that it's been acknowledged that there's officially a blood tie between them. Now, she says that Magneto leaves a path of dead wives and daughters in his wake, which also doesn't make much sense to me. I, I mean, I don't know. The, the scene, I see what they're getting at, but it just, it, it falls flat for me. It just doesn't work. Just then, Quicksilver speeds into frame and proceeds to pummel the ever-loving hell out of Magneto. After beating him nearly to death, Northstar steps in to pull Pietro off. Now, Quicksilver says that he always knew Magneto would eventually kill Wanda and accuses him of constantly threatening to. Which, um, remember what I just said about Lorna? I don't remember any of this either. Uh, they're really trying here. But for any longtime fans, this just is not landing. I I suppose if we don't think about it, it's like, sure. But if you do, it it just doesn't work. Now, as Pietro is being comforted by Northstar, he suggests that Wanda was just unwell. Which I also don't get. <laughs> I mean, there was definitely some crisis of conscious stuff around the time of House of M, but that was a long time ago. Hasn't she been, like, an active Avenger since then? And hasn't she had at least one ongoing series since then? Is this just an attempt at shoehorning WandaVision crap into the comics? And that, that is an honest question, by the way, because I, you know I don't watch any of that stuff, so is that what they're doing here? If that's the case, I mean, fair play, I guess, but uh, maybe drop a footnote that we're, uh, that we're pulling in stuff from outside of comics for, for lore. I don't know. Anyway, from here, we shift over to the Healing Gardens, where Magneto is laid out and he is in a coma. Wolverine, Cyclops, and Jean discuss everything that's gone down. Logan asks why Jean doesn't just try reading Magneto's thoughts. And so she tries, but only gets screaming in response. From here, Quicksilver stops at the Green Lagoon for a drink. He's joined at the bar by Toad and Mastermind, who, if you're familiar with the Silver Age stuff, or if you're listening to Essential X-Lapsed, you'll know that uh, they were his teammates in the original Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Of course, the barman is Blob, who that original Brotherhood did try and recruit early on as well. I think he was a member of their team for an afternoon or so. It's a neat little visual, and they all drink to Wanda. Mastermind, it's worth noting, is wearing his Silver Age costume and isn't dressed like we just saw him in X-Corp. Toad looks like his current yourself, so I don't think Mastermind's look was an intentional callback, though, I mean, it could all be an illusion, I guess. Now, Toad is quite upset about Wanda's death. Back in the long ago, he did have the hot pants for her. He goes to smash a glass before Blob gives him the boot. Pietro then cries, hoping that Wanda has finally found peace. Speaking of Wanda, let's hop right into her subconscious. Well, I think it's her subconscious. It could be purgatory. I mean, we did get a purgatory in her quote in the beginning, so maybe that's where we're at. In any case, uh, she's wearing a white take on her outfit, which is stained red with her blood, and she sees herself attacked by a white-cloaked figure. And we wrap things up with Wanda saying that, yes, she was killed, but shock of shocks, she ain't dead. So just where is she? Well, I suppose we will find out as we continue. That's where we leave it. 
Next episode, we hop back into the app to check out X-Men Unlimited number three. Now, you know, sometimes when we get a book that is a... That we've been waiting for for a long time It can go one of two ways here in the, you know, little talking time segment Either I just can't stop talking about it Or I just don't know how I feel about it Things like Way of X, I, I don't th- I, th- I might still be talking about Way of X number one somewhere <laughs> Because I was just talking so much about it But with this, I don't know, I'm not sure how I feel about it just yet I mean, like I said, there is some knowing how the sausage is made to this, right? Um, I don't think this was the original intention for the story, which unfortunately gives me this weird knee-jerk bias against it. And if that's nothing against Leia Williams, of course. And, uh, you know, I might be projecting, and hell, I probably am, but I feel like this whole miniseries event is coming from on high, and she has simply been tasked with getting us from editorially mandated point A to editorially mandated point B. And I also mentioned earlier that uh, I did feel a little bit of anger in this issue, though again, I may be imagining it, but I am getting those odd and, again, potentially imagined passive-aggressive Wade slot vibes that turned me off from much of their current day work, where there just feels like, I don't know, vitriolic. I don't feel like uh, Williams is angry at the fan base like I do with Slot and Wade, but I don't know, it just feels, I don't know, a little bit off to me. Now, the art here was decent, uh, though I mentioned it did get a bit muddy in places. Uh, Magneto especially looked kind of off. That may have something to do with the coloring, not necessarily sure. Uh, Maybe bits and pieces of this were rushed, as Editorial was uh, rearranging the deck chairs on the soon-to-be-in-flux X-Line. I mean, if you're following along, we've had a lot of uh, changes announced that are coming our way. Books are getting canceled, books are getting launched, miniseries are popping up, one-shots are popping up, creators are playing musical chairs. We just really, we just don't know, and maybe the nebulousness extends to to this very issue. I mean, I, I feel like I'm copping out here, because... There wasn't a whole lot about this issue that I could, like, truly get behind or truly have a problem with. It was just kind of there, and for a book that we've waited so long for and was so hyped, um, I just feel weird making any sort of hard and firm stance just yet. But, I mean, of course, we are just one issue into it, so... So, for the most part, we're just going to put a pin in it. Um, there were bits of this that I dug, yes. Um, I was tickled by seeing the original Brotherhood hanging out at the Green Lagoon. Uh, that might just be because we're doing the Essential x lapsed and we've spent a lot of time with that team. So it's interesting and just neat to see that call back there. And uh, it's one of those things that, if you know, it adds a lot to the story. If you don't know, it doesn't matter. It's still a nice scene. I also liked the idea that uh, Wanda and Pietro do have Cerebro backups because... It kind of opens things up here. I mean, I joked about characters like Toro and Franklin and uh, Cloak and Dagger. Part of me now wonders, are there backups for them? And if not, why not? Right? They did say here that Wanda and Pietro were the only ones to slip one past Cerebro. But why? Like, how? I don't know. Maybe maybe it's that high evolutionary thing. But uh, in any event, I thought that was pretty cool. It was uh, something I wasn't expecting to be addressed quite this early in the run here. But, um... Uh, My original theory, when this was all announced and we found out exactly what was going on, I figured that this was going to end with them trying to put Wanda through the resurrection protocols and it actually working, which would mean that she's been a mutant all along. I thought this was going to be the re-mutantification of uh, the Scarlet Witch. And for all any of us know, that very well still might be the plan. So we will uh, just have to wait and see. Now, uh, there were some bits of this I didn't dig. Um, I was not fond of Polaris's monologue. I thought it was very nonsensical. The quiet council scene was a little bit clunky. And uh, the reveal at the very end that uh, Wanda is not necessarily dead took some wind out of my sails. I I was hoping that we would save that for a little bit. So with all that said, I think it would probably be best for me to withhold any further judgment until we get a little bit deeper into this one, uh, lest I spiral into... uh, Crazy hot takes and theories. So that is where we'll leave it. Um, I would definitely suggest that this is one worth picking up. It's a very important chapter, and um, despite not really being moved by this first issue, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing where it goes. But with all that said, um, let's hop into the back half of the show here. We do have a little bit of news. Big thanks to Ed Moore over on the Facebook group, who uh, sent a bit of news about a new title. This is going to be called Legionnaires. 
huh, it's a new Nightcrawler-led book, which, I mean, that it, it totally tickles me. The name, I'm sure the name is meant to be a play on the character Legion, of course, but uh, on a whole nother level here, it's... It's a funny little throwback here because Nightcrawler was originally created to uh, fit into the uh, Legion family of books over at DC. So it's it's kind of a full circle <laughs> sort of moment here. It's pretty cool. There's only one N in this Legionnaires, though. Now, Ed was kind enough to warn that there were spoilers in this article. So uh, I clicked on it, then hit Control-F and typed in the word Spurrier <laughs> just to see if he was a part of it. And yes, indeed, he is a part of it. And we do get one image which shows us the cast here, and it is quite an interesting cast. Of course, we got Nightcrawler. From Way of X, we have Pixie and Dr. Nemesis. Interestingly, we have Blindfold, who was, uh, we saw her grave just a little bit ago, and, uh, we know how Krakoa feels about Precog, so that's interesting. We also have Forget-Me-Not, which is insane. And we round out our team with, are you ready for this? The Juggernaut. Now, Simon Spurrier must be a mind reader of some sort, uh, because I, I know he's not listening to this program, but he's answering so many of the questions that we pose on this show. So uh, I'm 100% looking forward to uh, Legionnaires, and uh, I'm guessing that this is probably going to drop post-Inferno, which I don't know what the landscape's going to look like post-Inferno. It looks like it's going to be very different, and uh, I'm there for it. Can't wait for it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Now, speaking of fun, how about we hop into the mailbag here? We're going to start with Evan, who's talking about X-Men number 21. Now, Evan says, With the new X-Men lineup revealed so far in advance, I was looking forward to the story of how they were selected, why they wanted to be on the team. Cyclops and Jean were no-brainers, and apparently not part of the election. Rogue, too. But why would people pick Laura over Logan? I don't mind at all. I would, too. But I'm curious for the in-story reason. And as glad as I am for Sync to be included, why him? Sunfire and Polaris could be interesting stories, too. But what we got was a reveal of something that had already been revealed. Seemed like a missed opportunity. I do hope Duggan revisits this in the new series. Yeah, I I read that scene as a missed opportunity as well. It just felt very afterthoughty, you know? It just didn't feel like the event that... I mean, this is probably a victim of Marvel's hype machine. You know, they had the election. It was like, this is going to be a huge deal, and then... Over the course of three or four pages, like, we just see people with their eyes closed. And it's like, well, here's your new team. Now, I kind of get why they couldn't do, like, a in-story election. Because, first of all, I don't know that I'd trust any of the writers to do so with tact. (laughs) But uh, at the same time, I mean, that would be a story. Especially in this day and age, it wouldn't have just been a, you know, brief aside at the Hellfire Gala. It probably would have been a five or six issue miniseries or a six issue arc in the new volume of X-Men. There's certainly intrigue there, of course. I mean, seeing who people voted for and maybe getting some reasons as to why. I mean, you asked why Logan and not Laura. And I feel like that could be something that would be fun and interesting to deconstruct. But uh, we just didn't get the allotment of pages for that sort of thing. And I mean... They are talking about doing this sort of thing every year, which is either an amazing amount of uh, confidence that this book's going to last a long time, because in Marvel, even the high-selling books don't last terribly long, or it's a hint that uh, X-Men Volume 6 will run 12 issues before being relaunched at uh, a new number one for Volume 7. Whatever the case, I'm not really keen on the whole election thing. Uh, That feels very Legion of Superheroes to me. I would rather our X-Men team grow and change and, and just evolve uh, organically. You know, people will come, people will go, people will join, people will quit, people will go on break. That's the way I want to see my X-Men team, not one that's beholden to an election gimmick. Evan continues, I totally missed that Namor was chatting with the Illuminati. I really just thought he was hanging out with the Avengers, who he has been at odds with recently. So once again, listening to X-Lapsed pays off. Now let's spread that rumor around as far as we can. Listening to X-Lapsed pays off. Evan continues, That's a much more loaded scene, and whether it goes somewhere or it's just an Easter egg, it could be interesting to see the Illuminati cross paths with their former member, Beast. Yes, it could indeed. And while I was never all that keen on the whole Illuminati thing to begin with, that could be an interesting scene. That's a scene I think I'd like to see. Now, Evan wraps up with, well, until Dazzler, Jubilee, and Aurora become the new Illuminati, make mine X-Laps. And uh, I'd like to be the first one to suggest that we'd call them the Alvaro Illuminati. 
But thank you so much for writing in on that one, Evan. Uh, next, we've got a letter from our friend Professor Allen uh, talking about X-Corp number four, which, well, we just did that one last episode, and you might remember that I had... Uh, I didn't enjoy that one, <laughs> which uh, I mean, that might be putting it lightly. Uh, Professor Allen says, You know that experience when you understand a topic pretty well, and then you see that topic touched on in comics, and you just have to shake your head? For me, things I know a good amount about include theology and church history, comics and geeky stuff, and maybe most of all, business and the stock market. I get paid to yammer about this. It's kind of my specialty. And yes, I can totally relate to that sort of thing. For me, uh, my, uh, I guess my trigger subject would be uh, psychology. When I see a writer who maybe took Psych 101, like within the past... 15, 20 years, try to present themselves as like an authority on the subject, that really, <laughs> that really gets under my skin. And with psychology, it's, um, creators are pretty quick to, uh, to show you how much or how little they know about the subject when they start using terms like psychologist and psychiatrist interchangeably, which happens fairly often. And it's like, uh, it's like nails on a chalkboard for me every single time. Another subject that's touched on sometimes, and this is probably a little bit meta, but uh, comic book history. Especially when it comes to things like uh, the Comics Code Authority, which anybody listening knows that I don't shut up about that. I talk about that all the time, and anytime I see I see it distilled down to just somebody waving their fist saying, damn, you were them, it's, it gets under my skin, because that is the narrative. That's the inch-deep, mile-wide, lazy distillation of a topic that um, goes a lot deeper than I think a lot of folks... Uh, tend to assume. And, and while that doesn't come up terribly often in the comics themselves, I have seen it on, on several occasions. And like I said about Psych, it's, uh, it's nails on a chalkboard every single time. Professor Allen continues, That being said, I try not to get too hung up on simplifications and shortcuts that comics have to make in telling stories that touch on corporate and business affairs. I have not read X-Corp, but have gritted my teeth through your discussions of this title's take on these issues. But finally, listening to you cover issue number four, I had to step in. Mostly to say, yes, all of your instincts are correct. The corporate shareholding shenanigans that you described in episode 249 are, to say the least, bizarre. No, ownership transfers made under threat are not legally binding. And yes, governmental authorities spend a lot of time and money investigating and persecuting stock-related crimes. And yes, there are some very large media organizations dedicated to bringing scandals like these to light. It just couldn't happen like X-Corp number four. I tell you, thank you so much for clarifying all of that here. I, I had my assumptions, of course, and I did have my, you know, very puny anecdotes, which, uh, you know, I hate making blanket statements, especially when I have such little experience or knowledge about a subject. But I'm so happy and relieved to find out that I'm not insane for questioning the way this story was written. This feels to me kind of like a... How do I put it? Uh, like an ignorance begets ignorance sort of situation? Like we all know that comics are primarily meant for entertainment, but they also provide information, and they're loaded with opinions, and I think that the information and the opinions presented in comics may actually inform the opinions and the knowledge of some of the readership. So the more shortcuts we take and the less legitimate information, like jargon, that's included in these books, it just kind of becomes a cycle unto itself here. So when a portion of the audience reads this, and no matter how lazily or misinformed or inaccurate that the information is presented, they don't question it. It's like I said during the synopsis of X-Corp number four, if you squint and you don't think about it too hard, sure, it makes perfect sense. And I think uh, that's what they're counting on. Unfortunately, I just don't think you can hinge an entire story on misinformation and, uh, and the belief that you're like shining a light or fighting the good fight against corporate corruption while also cashing a check from Disney. <clears throat> Alan continues, I wonder if this all comes from a misunderstanding of the common stock market phrase, hostile takeover. That sounds like a scenario that would involve force and guns and kidnapping and other action movie tropes, but no, it just involves one company spending lots and lots of money buying stock, which, by the way, has to be disclosed publicly, a fact that is never touched on in pop culture dramatizations of this type of scenario. I think you nailed it right there. I think that's absolutely what this is, and it wouldn't surprise me if uh, the title to issue 6 of X-Corp was Hostile Takeover. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me one bit, because... Like you said, just the, the phrase, it does evoke feelings of 
literal force and, and violence. <laughs> but uh, as you said, no, it's, uh, it's, it's far more mundane than that. Professor Allen wraps up with deep cleansing breath. Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. Overall, it sounds like my opinion of X-Corp mirrors yours. Nope. <laughs> Take care, congrats on 250, and keep up the good work. Well, it's always a treat when we hear from Professor Allen, so thank you so much for taking the time to write in. It really does mean a lot to me. And speaking of meaning a lot to me, let's head into our shout-out segment here, where I say thank you to those who uh, interacted and engaged with uh, my social media posts on Twitter and Facebook to help raise the profile of this little show. Over on Twitter, I'd like to thank Ed Moore, Walt Neeland, Longbox Crusade, Lucretia, Comicsville, Chris Bailey, Dave Schultz, Toby, 21st Century Boys, and Joe Crawford. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Jesse DeYoung, Pat Sampson, Billy D, and Walt Neeland. Now we're going to wrap things up by, uh, well, getting real and then uh, making an announcement that's uh, been a long time coming. First, and uh, I mean I started saying this at the start of the show, I want to I wanna thank everybody. Um, X-Lapsed as a project was one that, I don't know, is it a little too precious to refer to it as a uh, creative renaissance? <laughs> it might be. But uh, before I started X-Lapsed here, I thought I was on my way out of... Uh, of the audio content game. I thought it was just a part of my past, not something I was ever going to do again. And it was only through meeting all the wonderful folks who've supported this program from the start that I uh, I felt like I, uh, you know, got my groove back in this uh, in this little hobby. And I mean, I don't have to tell you that last year, and I mean, even this year, was a difficult year for a lot of us. Um, we're all probably tired of hearing the phrase new normal, but I mean... That's what it was, you know, and uh, a lot of us felt isolated, alone, unimportant, uh, forgotten, and uh, I mean, that's me on a good day. <laughs> so imagine how I felt during the, uh, you know, the early days of the new normal. So X-Lapsed and uh, the community around it has really just afforded me the opportunity to kind of channel myself into something and also to interact with, you know, such wonderful people. And yes, as I say often and will probably continue to, uh, podcasting and content creation in general can be a very lonely endeavor. You're, you're all alone at the end of this. When, I mean, this is the 250th episode. When I hit publish, ain't no confetti coming from the ceiling. There's nothing to commemorate this as anything other than another day. So yes, it's lonely and it's time intensive, but uh, the friendships I've made and the interactions I've had with those friends have made it uh, all worthwhile. And I can only hope that... I've added even the teeniest, tiniest bit to your days because uh, you guys have really enriched mine. So thank you all so much. Uh, there really are no words. Um, it just means the world to me that you're all there. So how about that announcement? And I tell you, it's been a long time coming and hasn't happened because I'm a coward. But uh, that announcement is that this 250th episode is the final episode. No, 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 it's not the final episode. The announcement is, and I'm... Still quite uncomfortable, but uh, we're doing the Patreon thing now. I originally thought about doing this with episode 50. I thought that was a decent, you know, track record of episodes. And then, then it jumped to 100, and then 200, and now finally with 250, I figure if I don't do it now, um, I probably never will. And of course, I'm not expecting this to be wildly successful, or even successful in the slightest. And if you're not interested in shipping in, I mean, that's cool. We're still friends. I, I would not hold that against anybody. And I'm certainly not going to be withholding the content that's currently on the channel to Patreon exclusives here. So if you're still enjoying X-Lapsed or the Essential X-Lapsed or the Collected X-Lapsed or Quester Days, Moratory Mondays, some new stuff that's coming down the pike here, that's never going to be uh, taken away and put behind a paywall. So you don't have to worry about that. I guess the only thing you'd have to worry about is uh, me just adding one sentence to my script where I say, this is the address of the Patreon if you're interested at the end of the episode. Now, the reasoning behind this, it's, uh, it's a result of an inconvenient observation and question I received not too long ago. And I've received this question a few times, but uh, this time it was uh, especially pointed. I've mentioned that X-Lapse episodes can take anywhere from three to four hours, and uh, things like the Essential X-Lapse can take anywhere from five to seven hours per episode, uh, based on how much research I have to do to clarify things in the back matter, just how deep we go into the back matter, and how dense some of these stories are. I mean, those scripts that I write for Essential X-Lapsed episodes are sometimes cosmic treadmill length, and those scripts had two guys working on them for an entire week. 
So yes, uh, a lot of time gets spent on these shows, and uh, my wife noticed and uh, asked me just how much time I was spending on this hobby, and I sheepishly told her, and uh, considering how awesome and patient and accepting she's been of me engaging in this hobby, I figured the very least I can do is try to make it a break-even sort of endeavor. And so, here we are. So you might be asking, well, what do I get if I chip in? And uh, I suppose when it's all said and done, that's up to you all, because uh, I don't know what I'm doing, right? Um, Patreon does offer, like, uh, suggestions on what you could give to patrons, and it's things like uh, AMAs, Ask Me Anythings, or uh, Google Hangouts and Skype calls, but I figure who in the world would want that? Though, of course, if you do, let me know, and I would be happy to do it. I'm totally open to any suggestions, but uh, of all the podcasting stuff, really the only thing I know how to do is make content. I can't promote content. <laughs> I can't do anything with the content, but I can make content. So that's what I'm going to do. Now, I did put out a teaser not too long ago on social media, which uh, alluded to a new project that I'd be kicking off, and it's something that I'm calling Xlapsed.1. Now, this was originally intended to be a show where I would fill in stories that didn't necessarily fall under our purview. And um, the things that came to my mind were things like uh, X-Men First Class, uh, Professor Xavier and the X-Men, that, uh, that 99-cent book from back in the mid-90s which retold the Silver Age stories, things like Hidden Years when we reach you know the end of the first 66 and Essentials, things like the Tad Carter story in Amazing Adult Fantasy, Probably, you know, that Mentalo story that we did the three-parter on in Essentials, that probably should have been a point one sort of a deal. But those were the sort of uh, stories that I was looking to cover on this point one endeavor. And I probably don't have to explain where I got the point one idea from, right? Probably not. If, if you need me to, I, I, I'm glad to, but I, I don't think I do. Anyway, I let this ruminate in my head for a little bit here, and then I decided that, uh, you know, if we're covering all of mutantum, like a complete history of mutants in the Marvel Universe, well, then we kind of have to start at the beginning, don't we? And so, X-Lapsed Point One will start with a uh, very deep dive, no pun intended, on Marvel's first mutant, Namor the Submariner, and uh, we're taking it to even before Marvel Comics number one. And I tell you what, this is my first time reading these things, and they are insane, and I can't wait to share them with you. And so I won't. Uh, when I'm done yapping here, I'm going to actually send it over to the first episode of X-Lapse Point One, which I'm going to include here as a little preview as to what you might get over at the Patreon page, which is uh, up and active right now, uh, fingers crossed anyway. Um, and the first four episodes of X-Lapse Point One are waiting for you right there at patreon.com slash xlapsed. Now, in addition to the uh, new audio content, I'm not sure how wide an audience there's going to be for... Well, anything I do, basically, but uh, this especially. I'm going to start uploading my X-Labs scripts. And uh, I, like I said, I don't know how many people are interested in that sort of thing. I do know that there is a, at least a few people who might be interested in that sort of thing. And uh, so long as I got all the uploads done right, there should be 12 of them up there waiting for you. We're going through both House of X and Powers of X, the first 12 episodes of the program. So with that, that's my uh, soft sell for patreon.com slash xlapsed. And uh, if I did this right, if you do decide to chip in, you will not be charged until the first of the month. So you'll basically get this week to, you know, try it on, see how it fits, see if you enjoy it, and uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll build a fun little community over there. And like I said, I'm open to any and all suggestions here. Um, we could do book clubs, we could do chats, if, if you want to do an AMA. I couldn't imagine anybody would be interested, but uh, that's an option. Also, if we can get a certain number of folks in there, I'd be totally cool doing giveaways and stuff. I think that could be a lot of fun. But with all that said, I would like to thank you all one more time so, so much for all your support over the past year plus, and of course, the past six years of my creating content for this worldwide internet. And without any further ado, I'm going to send it over to the really cool ragtime music I picked for uh, <laughs> X-Lapsed Point One because we are in the golden age, and I thought that evoked the right feel. But uh, I'm going to shut up now, and I'm going to send it over to the ragtime, and then we're going to talk Namor the Submariner. And his first appearance is in Motion Picture Funnies Weekly Number 1 and Marvel Comics Number 1.
Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to something brand new that I'm calling Xlapsed Point One. And if you're currently hearing this, it could be for one of four reasons. First, um, I finally got my guts together and started that Patreon. I've been kind of juggling around for the past several months, and you were kind enough to support the show. Two, I started the Patreon and it flopped very, very badly, and uh, I decided to shut it down, and this is now on the main feed of the program. Three, I just didn't get my stuff together and didn't do a Patreon, and this one went on the uh, main feed right away. Or, I guess four is I did do the Patreon, but I had this episode as the first episode out as a sample on the main feed. In any event, I want to thank you so much for checking out this program, and uh, let's talk for a bit on exactly what X-Lapsed Point One is going to be. It's basically going to be filled with stories that don't quite fit into the other programs here. You know, the main x show talks about current year stuff. Essential x talks about, you know, from the Silver Age on. We're going to talk about stories here that don't really fit. And the initial um, thought process behind this was that I wanted to take a look at some of the retellings of the early stories. There were things like uh, X-Men First Class that would fill in blanks. Uh, There was Professor Xavier and the X-Men from the 90s, which would retell the Lee and Kirby stories. Things like Hidden Years, which are in continuity, but they don't really fit into the mission statement of the essential X-Labs. So I figured we'd cover... Those kind of stories here. We'd probably also fit in some Quicksilver Scarlet Witch stories here. I mean, this was just going to be the uh, catch-all for the mutant stories that uh, don't quite fit. And, you know, in hindsight, if you're following along with the Essential X-Labs, you'll know that we did a three-part Mentalo trilogy (laughs) as part of that show. And if I'm being honest, uh, that Mentalo story probably would have fit better. Now, I originally intended to have the first episode of this program be the Tad Carter story from uh, Amazing Adult Fantasy number 14, which I did cover at Chris's on Infinite Earths as part of the X-Lapsed Origin series of articles. This was a story called The Man in the Sky by Stanley and Steve Ditko and included the first appearance of mutants in the Silver Age. It predates X-Men, but it has a lot of the same themes, like the fear and the hate that would come into the X-Men. That was all first mentioned in that uh, amazing adult fantasy story. Then I thought, okay, well maybe we can go even further back. There was a story in Yellow Claw number 3 called Concentrate on Chaos by Jack and Roz Kirby, which features the first mention of mutants in the... What would we call 1956? The Golden-ish Age? The very, very early Silver Age? In that uh, interim period between ages, I guess. But that would be the first mention of mutants in a Marvel comic. And while that story really wouldn't have very many repercussions on uh, what we know now, I felt like it was kind of a necessary, if if nothing else, just a novel thing to include uh, in the history of mutantdom in Marvel comics. But you guys know me. If we're going to do something, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, right? That's kind of just the way I do things. And, uh, well, I pose the question, who is the first mutant? I'll give you a hint. Uh, There was a book called The First Mutant starring this character back uh, in, what, 2003, 2004? The Tsunami stuff. It is, of course, Namor the Submariner, or as a 10-year-old Chris would say, Namor the Submariner. And so we're going to be talking a whole lot about him as we start this uh, program and this little project off here as we work our way through mutantdom in the Marvel Age. Um, I even thought about calling this show Imperious Rex Lapsed, but uh, I thought that would pigeonhole us into just talking about Namor, where I certainly don't want to limit us to only speaking about Namor here. I tell you, I'm very much looking forward to this because uh, I've never read these stories. I know very, very little about the Golden Age, and so this is a wonderful opportunity for me to broaden my horizons and uh, really familiarize myself with uh, the Golden Age of Marvel, like the seminal stories that, uh, that built the foundation for pretty much everything we read now. Now, before we get into Namor's first story, uh, a little bit more about the Patreon, if in fact uh, this is on Patreon, and uh, right now it's like a 50-50 proposition. Um, I'm still setting up the page as I record this, and it's asking me to do like a tier program. If you give X amount, you get this. If you give X more amount, you get that. And frankly, I am uh, kind of at a loss. Uh, Reggie and I did have a Patreon a few years ago, but uh, he set that up, and I had very little to do with it outside of creating content for it. So this is all new to me, 
And uh, Patreon is very helpful in giving ideas for what sort of uh, rewards to give. But unfortunately, I don't think anybody would be interested in them. They suggest things like hosting an AMA and ask me anything. But I, the way I look at it, who, who would want to ask me anything? <laughs> I really don't know. If I'm wrong, please let me know. Also, things like Hangouts. And I think to myself, who in the world would want to hang out with me? So that's another one that's... I don't know, I can't wrap my head around it. But if I'm wrong, please let me know. The only thing I really know how to do is create content. And so, we have Xlabs.1 as the uh, Patreon-exclusive program. At least, uh, as of this recording, that's what it's planned to be. But if this uh, group does turn out to be even marginally successful, I am open to any possibilities here, including the aforementioned AMA hangouts. Uh, we could do a book club, a regular monthly, bi-monthly thing. Uh, we can open up a Discord when I find out what a Discord is. <laughs> um... I'm cool doing giveaways here. I'm always on the hunt for stuff. And it would be really cool to be able to share some of the uh, the treasures that I find. And also, uh, the one thing that I do have currently in the tiers, at least as of this recording, is uh, listener requests. If anybody has a request for a book they'd like me to discuss, X or otherwise, that is currently an option. So uh, we will play it by ear for now, and uh, we will learn on the job, I suppose. <laughs> Um, now, with all that out of the way, one more giant thank you to anybody who is listening to this before we hop into the first appearance of Namor the Submariner, and no, that's not Marvel Comics number one. It's actually something called Motion Picture Funnies Weekly number one, which has an April 1939 cover date. Also, we will be discussing Marvel Comics number one, October 1939 cover date here, because uh, only the first eight pages of the 12-page story appeared in motion picture funnies, and we'll get into that as we go along here. The story is called The Submariner. It's by Bill Everett, the creator of Namor. Edits by Lloyd Jacquet, or Jaquette, of Lloyd Jaquette's Funnies, Inc., and Martin Goodman of Timely. Now, motion picture funnies was free with your movie ticket, and uh, Marvel Comics number one was 10 cents. Now, you might be asking, and I wouldn't blame you if you did, just what in the hell is Motion Picture Funnies Weekly? Well, this was a 36-page black-and-white promotional comic that was handed out in movie theaters during the spring of 1939. And it is the first-ever publication associated with Timely Comics. And we even have a little bit of fake-ass comics history on this one. Now, the word is, the comics industry forgot about this issue entirely until it was discovered in the office of a recently deceased publisher during the late 1970s. Apparently, only six to nine copies of this one exist. And there's only a single cover image of it online. So if you're familiar with this image, it's got the words pay copy written on it with pen. And I did my best to remove that from the cover art for this episode. I, I don't know how good a job I did. Uh, you could probably still see some remnants of it. Now, it's worth noting that Motion Picture Funnies Weekly did get a little bit of a shout-out in the Marvel Legacy one-shot from 2018 or so. There was a scene where there was a crate found with the number 4-1939 on it, so April 1939, which of course was the release date of this issue. So a neat little nod to this one, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Motion Picture Funnies after our synopsis. So let's hop right into the first story of Namor the Submariner. Our story opens with the Submariner rummaging through some salvage, but he's not the only one doing it. You see, above the depths is the SS Recovery Salvage Ship, where they're just about to send down a, uh, you know, a Big Daddy from Bioshock to take a closer look at the wreckage. Now, what Big Daddy Nelson discovers is, well, someone appears to have beaten them to the punch. You see, the safe of the ship was uh, busted open, and the entire wreck has been rifled through. Nelson surfaces and shares his uh, information with the captain, and the captain decides to send Nelson right back down, along with a fella named Carly. Now, this wreck is deep below the surface, where the water pressure is so intense that it wouldn't be possible to survive outside the, you know, the Big Daddy outfits. Now, Nelson approaches the wreck with an acetylene torch, but is surprised by the fact that the ship's door has been left open. They then notice a strange swimming fellow, which, you know, shouldn't be possible this deep. And, of course, this is our Namor. Now, he's puzzled by the interlopers from above and assumes by looking at them that they are robots. Namor avoids them, but finds what he believes to be their control wires. Well, they're actually air hoses and communication cables, but uh, <laughs> that's about to become a moot point. 
Namor cuts through the cords, uh, which really does a number on our divers, as you might imagine. What's more, he swims right up to them and kills them. He kills them. He violently stabs one of them repeatedly and then crushes the other's helmet. Like, crushes their head in the helmet. So, like, right out of the gate, we are, uh, we are really deep in the brutality, which is kind of surprising. Now, up above, the captain notices some bubbles hitting the surface, and he sends another fella named Anderson back under the sea to check out what's going on. What he finds is the gruesome scene of his dead partners. He doesn't stay down there too long. You know, he doesn't want to risk getting the bends, or repeatedly stabbed, or having his head crushed, so good on him. By now, Namor's had enough of this crap, and so he swims up to right under the SS Recovery, then he shoves it out of the drink and onto some nearby rocks, which splits the steamship in two. Quite pleased with himself, our hero grabs the two robots he just deactivated and heads to a secret underwater door. He says, Doma, which is either the name of the doorman or an Atlantean version of Open Sesame. Inside, he carries the corpses into a chapel-like chamber, and here we meet Thakor, the Holy One. Now, Thakor looks kind of like a catfish with Rob Liefeld broccoli floret hair. The Holy One has Namor, and he actually calls him Namor, by the way. He has him unscrew the diving helmets from his quarry, and he's shocked to learn that these were, in fact, not robots, but Earthmen. Just then, Namor's mother enters the room and congratulates him on beginning their war of revenge against the white race. She then turns to a squire called Karal and asks him to ossify the dead guys as an example. So uh, hopefully we won't be getting a scene of, uh, of Karal like flaying the flesh off these characters so he can set up their bones. Now, Namor wonders why his mother hates the Earth people so much. You know, after all, his father was a land dweller. He was, of course, Commander Leonard Mackenzie. And so, it's time for Princess Fenn to share the secret origin of the Submariners and their war with the Whites. You see, back in 1920, so 19 years before this story, which I suppose would make Namor around 18 years old at this point, there was a ship called the Oracle, which came from America to the seas above the Submariners' ancient home at the floor of the ocean at the South Pole. Now, these Americans set up a base on an ice floe directly above... Atlantis? <laughs> I don't know what we'll call this place. Now, over the course of the next several weeks, their experiments and studies caused quite a ruckus for the ancient city, during which castles were demolished, submariners were dying left and right, and so Princess Fen was chosen to act as a spy, since she looked the most like a female of the white race. So she heads to the surface, where she'd be discovered by old Lenny. Now, he treated her with kindness, dressed her in warm clothes, and fed her human food, both of which did a number on her system here. She couldn't be, you know, covered in clothes, and eating human food was just not an option. We learn here that submariners can only be out of the water for up to five hours at a time, and so Fen would have to sneak away to take dips several times a day. Now, over the next little while, she developed a friendship with Leonard, learned how to communicate with him, and eventually they would fall in love and marry. Now, all the while, she was spilling all the beans to her master, which basically amounted to, hey, you know these humans? I don't think we can beat them. But that was then, and this is now. And uh, now, we've got Namor. And Fen thinks it's the right time to send Namor up to the surface, to the land of the white people, to exact their revenge. And this is where the strip ended in Motion Picture Funnies number one, but we do have four more pages that were included in Marvel Comics number one. And uh, the art changes a little bit, too. It's still Bill Everett, of course, but, I don't know, it looks a little bit clearer from this point on. Uh, maybe it had something to do with the transfer. I, I really don't know. Anyway, we pick back up with Namor heading into an adjoining room, where we, he meets up with his cousin Dorma. Now, she's excited that Namor has been sent to the surface and wishes to accompany him. He nixes it, citing that it'd be far too dangerous, but if she wants to, she can come with him halfway. And so they swim, until they eventually reach the Cape Anna Lighthouse. So we're at a lighthouse, right? So what do you think Namor's opening salvo against the white people is going to be? You think maybe he's going to slaughter everybody in the area? Maybe he'll just knock the lighthouse right into the water? I mean, what kind of gruesome plan could Namor have for the white people? Well, he's going to politely knock on the door, head inside, and smash the light atop the lighthouse. And he figures that, hey, you know, maybe a ship or two might crash without the guiding light. So Namor knocks and Dorma acts as a lookout. Some goofball answers the knock, only to get smacked silly. 
Namor pushes his way in and then uh, flips a giant switch to, I guess, turn the light out like a true badass. Now, unfortunately, in the time it took for him to do so, the guard recovered and grabbed little Dorma. Namor lunges, grabs the guard, and throws him like half a mile into the ocean here. Just hurls this poor idiot. Now, Dorma warns that there's a sniper atop the lighthouse. And so our man makes a mighty leap and socks the would-be shooter. He then climbs to the top where he smashes the lights with a shovel. By now, the Coast Guard or Navy have arrived on the scene, and Namor notices a small plane flying nearby. And so he takes Dorma in his arms and leaps up to it. He murders the pilot, sits Dorma in the cockpit, and then instructs her to crash the thing, which is just insane. Uh, And then Namor himself dives back into the drink. And that is where we leave it. Now, what a weird and uh, wonderful little story here. Like I mentioned, I don't have a whole lot of experience with the Golden Age. Uh, Golden Age comics, I've tried reading a handful of them. Uh, Anytime I can get my hands on a reprint or a collected edition, and they just don't hold my attention. I don't know if they're just so long in the past that I feel disconnected from them. Like, I feel like the stories maybe don't matter so much, at least in the context of uh, what we what we have nowadays, which I, I guess that probably is reason enough to yank my fake-ass comics historian card, or maybe it's verification that I am indeed a fake-ass comics historian. But I had a blast with this one. Namor was uh, never a favorite character of mine, but more often than not, I usually consider him to be a really cool character. I love the moral ambiguity. I love how dismissive he is of others around him. He's just a really cool character. Whether he's a good guy or a bad guy or somewhere in the middle, it's a, he's an interesting and complex guy. And uh, to see his first adventure is insane. I mean, two pages in, and he's already repeatedly stabbing someone and crushing another dude's head. It's not what I expected here. Another thing I really didn't expect was getting quite the origin that we got for the Submariners here. And of course, it's a bit different from what we know now with Atlantis and stuff like that, but uh, it was pretty cool to get so much information right off the bat. Such an unexpected education I got (laughs) in reading these 12 pages, and... uh, and I mean, it facilitated some uh, some rabbit hole dive in here in trying to figure out everything else that went on in motion picture funnies and even Marvel Comics number one. And we'll, we'll get to talking about that in just a little bit. But perhaps most of all, I'm finding myself developing a greater appreciation for uh, the Golden Age, for Bill Everett, and for uh, Namor the Submariner. Marvel's very first mutant. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, the other stories that appeared in Motion Picture Funnies Weekly here, most of which I haven't been able to find anything about uh, on the internet here. I, I may be looking in the wrong places. If anybody knows where to find some of these stories, not that uh, not that we would discuss them at any length, it's uh, more of a uh, curiosity and as a, uh, as a novelty, a uh, milestone in uh, Golden Age history, but appearing alongside Namor the Submariner in this issue are Cartoon and His Copycat by Martin Filchok, Jolly the Newsie by George Pita, Spiring by Jay Fletcher, and The Origin of the American Ace by Paul Loretta, and uh, I believe that one will be reprinted in Marvel Comics number two. Actually, that would be Marvel Mystery Comics number two. Speaking of Marvel Comics, let's uh, talk about what appeared alongside Namor in Marvel Comics number one. We got The Human Torch, not That Human Torch, by Carl Burgos. And this is the Jim Hammond Android version, and he's made many appearances since, uh, even as recently as a few months back in the pages of Iron Man. We got The Angel, not That Angel, by Paul Gustafson. Uh, This is the Thomas Holloway Angel, not Warren Worthington III. Now, he would show up here and there throughout Marvel history, but uh, not all that often. We got The Masked Raider by Al Andes, and The Masked Raider would appear in the semi-recent Marvel Comics number 1000. Jungle Terror by Tom Dixon. This is a one-off starring Ken Masters, and uh, not the Ken Masters from Street Fighter. Burning Rubber by Ray Gill and Sam Gilman. This is a street racing one-shot starring Billy Williams. Probably not Lando and the Cult 45 guy. And we got The Adventures of Kazar the Great, not that Kazar, by Bob Bird and Ben Thompson. This is the David Don't Call Me Danny Rand version of Kazar, and he never made it out of the Golden Age. 
because by then we had another Kazar who appeared in X-Men number 10, and we discussed that issue in the Essential X-Lapsed episode 15, which is available in the archives. Now, before we get out of here, a few final thoughts on Motion Picture Funnies Weekly. It looks like there were supposed to be at least another three installments released. Uh, however, none of them actually were. And you can easily find the unused covers online. They're, uh, they're easy to find. Now, it's rumored that Amazing Man Comics from Centaur Comics, September 1939 cover date, picked up the numbering from Motion Picture Funnies Weekly uh, since it launched with issue 5. Now, Bill Everett would contribute the art for this cover, which features, I'm going to assume, Amazing Man, and he's bound at the wrists and ankles, and he's taking a bite out of a snake. Hmm. Now, the back cover features an ad for another Centaur comic called Keen Detective Funnies, which has a very similar trade dress as another Detective Funny book. And they also use big sound effects that yell, Flash! And it also introduces uh, their lead hero, the Masked Marvel, who looks somewhat similar to another Marvel character of the day. So yeah, Centaur Comics, a little bit hacky, but uh, that's really all I could find on Motion Picture Funnies Weekly. If anybody out there listening has any more information, I would love to hear it, because this is a uh, pretty strange, and it feels like a forgotten piece of history here, a pretty big part of history considering the building blocks of what would ultimately become the Marvel Universe first showed up here. So really, really cool stuff. So happy to have read it, so happy to have shared it. But I think that's all I got for today. Now, since I am recording this far ahead of time, I can't thank anybody personally. But if you are listening, please rest assured that it means the absolute world to me. So thank you all so, so much. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so several different ways. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapse voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, Chris is on infiniteearths.com, Facebook, 90s X-Men, and of course the archives, chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And if, if I did get my stuff together, and this is... On Patreon, well, the Patreon address is patreon.com slash xlapsed. And if it is a place, well, I hope to see you there. But that's going to do it for this first episode. I would expect future episodes to not quite be this long, since uh, this one had a lot of history and pre-ramble. And uh, I don't expect every episode to have quite that much. But I hope you did enjoy it. I know I enjoyed putting it together. And one last time, a giant thank you. And as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.